Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. I'm Jackie Castle, and today I'm excited to talk about humor writing with David Sharp. David E. Sharp is a, a noisy librarian. Having grown up on the windy plains of the Texas Panhandle, David learned early on how to make his own fun. He also discovered a love for storytelling, a rich and vibrant art form with cultural roots all over the world. Among his early writings was a ransom note to his high school algebra teacher in Poison Pen, delivered with an enclosed photograph of a textbook tied to a chair. While this was wildly entertaining, it lacked the plot and structure of his later writings. Sharp has authored a number of short stories and launched a series of novels. His first book, Lost on a Page, chronicles the plight of fictional characters from various genres who seek to murder their authors. Had this been an autobiographical work, David E. Sharp might not be with us today. Well, welcome, David. So excited to have you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. So just to start us off, could you just let the listeners know how you got into writing humor? Is that where you began writing? Did you just find that you had a knack for it in trying other genres? Uh, what was that journey for you? Oh, yeah. So my um, my start in writing altogether was uh, theater writing. You know, I was involved with theater kind of through high school, you know, uh, touch and go through high school, but then in college, uh, very much so, and I got involved in a lot of uh, Shakespeare in the Park productions and different things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, we enjoyed doing all these different shows, but sometimes, you know, you're just looking for the the show that you want to do it and maybe it doesn't exist. You know, sometimes you just have this idea that's so specific, so weirdly specific, like I want to do this show, you know, and, and it's not going to exist unless you write it. So, uh, cause it's just not out there. And so, you know, it started out as kind of a lark, but, um, I got some friends together. We got a chance to put on one of my first productions, um, you know, which I had just written with, you know, no, no big plans at all. But, um, um, but it, it did really well. We got to do another run of that show. And then we got to write two more shows uh, and just kind of do them as well. And so, um, and, you know, they were humor because we were really just writing for ourselves. We just, you know, we weren't being paid for these things um, so much. We were just, it was fun to be on a stage. It was Amarillo, Texas, which is uh, in the the flat plains of Texas. You know, it's, it's a nice place to grow up, but but uh, I feel like you do learn to have your own fun. So this was just a great way to pass the time. And, um, you know, and, and we just love to laugh. So we'd often perform a show. And then um, uh, and then on the last night, you know, we would do sort of the the special features edition of the show, kind of like a DVD would have deleted scenes or or different things like that, where we would just like redo scenes. But in that most ridiculous way that you couldn't possibly do during the actual run because it would have been just too much but on the last night we do them anyway after the show was done and just tell the audience you know you're welcome to go the show's over but we're gonna do this stuff that we've been holding back on and so um so lots of fun you know uh but when you're writing theater you have to have you have to put it on a stage you know there's a lot of logistics Mm -hmm. to that and so um later on when i didn't have a a cast at my beck and call we'd gone gone our different ways um i got into writing short stories and then eventually novels so it's a Mm -hmm. long answer but no, that's great. I love to hear that. And I, I feel like there's often crossover with our guests in you know their creative endeavors. We just had uh, an episode with someone who did an interactive novel that they just wrote, but they also did an interactive play first. And so that was their gateway. So that's really fascinating. I've, I've acted before. I did through high school and college. And 
you know, a script that you get is very, very different than a short story. So what was that process like, like trying to transition from um, maybe a writing that was really dialogue heavy to creating a short story world that maybe needed a little more world building on the page? And how does humor fit into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is very different, you know, uh, because in theater, dialogue carries everything. It carries the plot. You know, there's a little bit of blocking, but that's so minimal. So having to learn how to make, you know, visuals, how how to have action within a scene and you're just describing it and things are happening and you can't um, you can't show someone having a pratfall, you know, so how do you manage to do that? Um, I'd say I still did a lot with dialogue, but in the editing process of my first book, I was able to kind of pull that back, you know, but dialogue carries so much of the character and it carries so much. So, so there's a lot of overlap too. I think that having a strong grasp of dialogue really helps to tell a story anyway, because it's, it's all about motivation and character and, you know, it just carries all of that. So the action in between, I think it just, I think for me, it just got to the point where it's like, well, I'm tired of saying he said, she said, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And so you start putting action in between instead because you don't have to put those dialogue tags in and, and then things just flow more naturally. But that was the big transition, I'd say. Yeah, that's interesting. I've tried it from the other direction. I've tried my hand at writing a few pilots and it's a really wonderful exercise for authors who maybe aren't dialogue first authors. And so I would imagine... It's kind of the same where you then start with really strong dialogue, but then need to flesh that out to give folks something to imagine. So what are, what are your stories? How do they start for you? Do you have an idea of a character and then kind of put them through the ringer in zany situations? Or do you, how does, how does that look? Do you have a few ideas for like a punchline and then you kind of go backwards? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it all starts in snapshots. I, I think, um, I think uh, you see something in the world or just something triggers uh, just a, a little picture in your mind and you're thinking like, there's a story there. I need to flesh that out. And so uh, usually it starts at, it's very character heavy. You know, I think I see the person before I see all the ridiculous things that happen to them. And I, as far as like the humor goes, you know, usually I like to take a, a situation that's just kind of ridiculous in its own right. But then, you know, for the people going through the situation, it's usually not funny at all. Mm. You know, the, the, the humor is being the reader and getting to see all this happening you know, if you think about probably the funniest movie, funniest book, funniest thing that you've read, usually the people involved are not enjoying themselves nearly as much as the people viewing it. Um, so I like to take a ridiculous idea and then just like treat it seriously so that uh, so that the humor kind of comes out more naturally. Oh, that's really cool. Can you give us an example, like maybe of a situation that the character is seeing differently than the reader? Um, yeah. So I have a short story called The Big Cheat. And it's, you know, kind of based on I just watched a lot of Bogart movies and things. So kind of a play on the big sleep as far except that this is like, uh, you know, some, some kids who are kind of right at the end of their school year. And you, you know, these are the kids who starts off like he's uh, carving his initials into his desk with a shiv that he had fashioned from a paper clip, you know, so these are the, these are the uh, ne'er-do-well kids mm-hmm. in the class. And uh, one of them prides himself on being the best cheater this side of Second Avenue and, you know, seeks to be the, the greatest cheater in the world. And so as, uh, you know, as the story progresses, his friends want to know, you know, uh, teacher's got her eye on you, you know, how are you going <laughs> to pull the wool over her eyes? And, you know, and he says, I've got a plan. And, you know, they want to know, what is it? He's holding it, you know, holding it back. And, uh, eventually divulges that um, 
he's managed to take the he's managed to take the textbooks and put them in mm. his bag as well as a few extra books from a library and while they're hidden amongst all this other text the answers are all here they're all in these books he's going to take these books home he's going to memorize the information inside by the time that the test comes he'll have it all down and the teacher <laughs> won't know where he's getting this information from cuz there's no crib sheets he's not looking at anything checking anybody else's papers it's the perfect crime you know in his eyes and then his friends you know uh say well you know what that is right and he says well no what is it and they say it's genius it's pure genius you know um so you know they're talking about big dreams and how to commit the perfect crime you know um you know to them like they never get the punchline it never happens but of course the reader starts recognizing you're studying you're just so yeah. this is such a foreign concept to you you just don't even understand that you're not doing something <laughs> deceptive here really right right so. that's funny so normally on these we have our authors read a little something at the end if the topic you know seems to suit it but i feel like for this episode it might be a little more fun to have you read earlier so then we can kind of talk about what you've read uh, and the listeners can have an idea of what it is that you write and because there are many different kinds of humor writing and so i've had the privilege of hearing david <laughs> read in person and something that he wrote on the fly and that was an honor so i would love to hear you know just a short story if you have one to share with us yeah, I definitely do. So um, this is a story called Pinecone. It is, um, it's published in a, a collection of short stories and poems and essays um, called Rise. It was put out by the Northern Colorado Writers. Um, and I'll just read it. Here we go. So Pinecone. Thursday afternoon, I'm busy losing myself in the woods. And maybe it's Friday. Hard to keep track in the summer. No school to pin me to a calendar. Whatever the case, I'm traipsing through the trees when I see them at the bottom of the hill. Jenna Ludmire and a couple of her friends. They haven't noticed me. Jenna's back is turned. Without thinking, I snatch up a pine cone and rear back. I don't know why I default to these things. Maybe I like the way Jenna scrunches up her face when she's mad. Maybe I'm taking out deep-rooted aggression. Maybe I'm just a jerk. I'm about to let her rip when I feel a tight grip on my wrist. Stop busted. I turn around to see a man I don't recognize. Still, he's kind of familiar. He wears a weird helmet. It's shiny with a series of strange blinking lights. Stop, he says again. You don't know what you're doing, Mikey. You can't throw that pine cone. Mind your own business, I tell him. I wrench my wrist from his grip. He gives me a strange look. This is my business. I don't see how. Are you some kind of pinecone rights activist? He gives me a pained look. You don't recognize me, Mikey? I never met you. He grasps my shoulder and kneels to look me in the eye. I'm you, Mikey. I'm you, from ten years in the future. Of course you are, I say. I should have guessed from your helmet with all the blinky lights. I don't really care if you believe me, he says, so long as you don't throw that pinecone. I look at the pine cone, still wrapped in my fingers. It's just right for throwing. Symmetrical, weighted on one end, full of little hooks on the ends that will snag in Jenna's hair. I can't imagine why such a little thing would be so important to this wacko, but I'm curious. So I ask, what happens if I throw the pine cone? A grim expression takes hold of his face. 
That pinecone will start a chain reaction of tit-for-tat pranks between you and Jenna Ludmire that will continue for years to come. Every prank will increase in intensity and elaboration until they've grown beyond anything either of you can handle. The Manicotti Incident. The Shoelace Conspiracy. The Orange Paint Affair. I pull away. Manicotti Incident? Which one of us is responsible for that? She is. Give me the details. They're too horrible. Just tell me something. I had to wash my sheets ten times to get the smell out. I have no response to that, but the muscles in my face betray my revulsion. He tightens his grip on my shoulder. Listen, Mikey. These pranks will continue for years. They will become legendary in your neighborhood. The sheer demented creativity you both display will echo in whispered conversations throughout the city. The consequences of this prank war in my time are... He shakes his head and draws in a long breath. Unimaginable. You can't expect me to take this seriously, I say. The twisted glint in his eye grows more intense. It is serious, though, Mikey. More serious than a smartass like you could hope to understand. I pull my face away from his hot breath. It smells faintly of onions and garlic. What? Does somebody get hurt? We don't kill anybody, do we? No, Mikey. It's worse than that. As the pranks get bigger, you and Jenna will develop a rivalry with one another. That rivalry will evolve into admiration. Admiration will grow into something else until... Until what? He pauses to bite his knuckle before he says, I'm getting married. Wait, what? Tomorrow. To Jenna Ludmire? He shakes me by the shoulders with both hands. I didn't know what I was doing, Mikey. I still don't. You gotta get me out of this, kid. I can't go down that aisle. I examine the pinecone in my hand. So I don't throw this pinecone, you don't get married. A wild, desperate expression takes hold of him. That's it. You got it, kid. This is where it all starts. Just drop it now and none of this will ever happen. It's so easy. I check over my shoulder. Jenna's still at the bottom of the hill with her back to me. She hasn't seen any of this. Well, maybe I could just throw it, but not as hard. Michael Jeremiah Flatbush. Future me sounds like a scolding parent. Okay, okay. I didn't... It didn't seem like such a big deal, but I guess I don't have to throw... Mikey, says another voice. We both turn our heads. Another me-ish guy stands a few feet away with another shiny helmet. Are you me too, I ask? He nods. This version sports a trim beard and mustache. I have to admit, it's a good look for me. Hello, previous Mikeys, he says. I come from 15 years in the future. Mikey the youngest, you have to throw that pine cone. What? Say me and the first other Mikey in unison. You heard me, says the newcomer. Throw that pine cone. Uh, don't do it, says the first other Mikey, relinquishing his grip on me. Do it, says the new other Mikey. He can't, says the first. He must, says the second. Do it, don't. Yes, no. Stop, I shout. They both turn their attention to me. This is getting out of hand, I say. First of all, it's confusing having three Mikeys. For now, you, I point to the newest version of me, you are Beard Mikey. And you, I point to the first other me, you are Desperate Mikey. Desperate Mikey recoils from his new nomenclature. Oh, that doesn't fit me at all. Yeah, it does, I say. Beard Mikey nods. Fine, says Desperate Mikey, then you're Mikey the Little Snot. If it makes you feel better. 
I shift my attention to Beard Mikey. Your turn. What's so important about this pine cone? He takes a breath and composes himself. You have to hear me out, Mikey the Little Snot. If you don't throw that pine cone, it will change things, but not everything. Jenna is still going to get married in ten years, but it won't be to you. It's going to be... He stops and chokes back his emotions. To Gabe Wilson. Gabe Wilson, says desperate Mikey. Seriously? Yes, please understand, Mikey's. You can't let that happen. You don't know what it will do to you to see them together. Knowing what could have been, it's like dying a little bit every day. Whoa, I say to Desperate Mikey. Maybe Beard Mikey should have been melodramatic, Mikey. Desperate Mikey nods. Better Gabe Wilson than us, he says. We didn't know what we were getting into. We were fools. Naive, impetuous fools, all of us. Avoid the horror of it all now. This is our only chance, he turns to Beard Mikey. Think of the Manicotti man. The Manicotti! Beard Mikey wipes a finger across his eye. I would endure a hundred Manicotti incidents to have Jenna Ludmire back. A thousand! A million! Desperate Mikey slaps him on the cheek. Get a hold of yourself. You're not thinking straight, he turns to me. Do you see? This is what she does to you. This is the power she wields. Gabe Wilson is throwing himself on a grenade right now. You can trust me on this. Gabe Wilson is a putz, shouts Beard Mikey. Sobs burst forth from him like floodwaters breaking through a dam. What does she see in him? What does she see in him? I shift my focus back and forth between them. So what? Am I throwing the pine cone or not? No, cries a new voice. The three of us groan. Well, two of us groan, and Beard Mikey kind of sobs with extra exasperation. The newcomer looks like the rest of us, but with a little more wear in his eyes and hints of silver in his hair. I am not surprised to see he is wearing a shiny helmet with blinky lights on it. I'm getting a headache, I say to the latest Mikey. How many years in the future are you? Twenty. And your problem is? Your kids, Mikey. You have no idea what's coming. Do you understand? Your kids. They'll act just like you. Is that a bad thing? I'm pretty cool, right? Parental Mikey shakes his head. Remember the incident with the worms last month? Nobody can prove that was me. All the other Mikeys roll their eyes. Oh, right. You were all there. Ah, time travel is really complicated. How about the sour milk scandal, says Desperate Mikey. The houseplant horror, offers Beard Mikey. Okay, okay, I get it. We don't need to revisit my sordid past. So my kids are a handful. They improve upon your methods, actually, says Parental Mikey. They're the masterminds behind the cricket conundrum, the baseball ballistics debacle, the chicken casserole catastrophe. I've never heard of those, says Desperate Mikey. Are they really worse than the stunts I pulled? Parental Mikey grunts. It's biology, young Mikeys. Take two pranksters with sadistic imaginations. Overlap their chromosomes three times over and station them in a suburban pressure cooker. I leave it to you to visualize the results. The other two other Mikeys wince. So what now, I ask? Throw it. No, don't throw it. Throw it. Do it now. The other Mikeys argue. Arguing turns to shoving, shoving to physical violence. I squeeze the pine cone nestled in my palm and glance once more down the hill. Jenna and her friends are laughing. They still haven't noticed us. Too absorbed in the freedom of a summer afternoon, deaf to all but the chirping music of the cicadas droning from the trees, 
A summer breeze wafts through her hair. Don't listen to any of them, says a new voice, quiet, dusty, and withered. A wrinkled hand rests on my shoulder. The old man who speaks wears a rusted helmet. Several of the lights no longer blink. Do it, Mikey, while they're distracted. He smiles with cracked lips and offers a wink. I lob it. No! shout two out of three squabbling Mikeys. The pine cone glides through the air with a spin that would inspire heart palpitations in even the most seasoned NFL quarterback. It curves ever so slightly in the breeze in a perfect arc toward the back of Jenna Ludmeyer's head. I have a gift for trajectories. It hovers for just a moment at the apex before hurtling along its fateful path. It strikes Jenna dead center on the back of her head, snags in her hair for a fragmented moment before dropping to the ground at her feet. She lets out a startled cry. The old man chuckles and pats my shoulder. You won't regret it. Then they're gone. All four of them wink out of existence. I'm standing alone. That's when I hear Jenna Ludmeyer's voice shouting, I see you, Michael Flatbush. I'll get you for this. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for sharing, David. Absolutely. Thanks for letting me. Yeah. So is that pretty indicative of most of your stories? So are there specific genres that you like to write your short stories in? Or do you just kind of play around with all of them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about short stories is that they're, you know, you can have one down in an afternoon, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's a slightly longer one, maybe a few days or a week. Uh, So it just gives you a chance to explore so many different avenues, you know, Uh, you don't have to commit to the way that you'd commit to a novel. Right. So, uh, So yeah, here, there, and everywhere. That's really neat. So talk to me a little bit about your process and what goes into the editing stage. So do your stories come out, you know, kind of timing wise, the way that you want them in the end, or is there a lot of work to go back through and make sure that the, uh, jokes land in the right spot and that the timing I know there's a lot of timing with humor like there's a very distinct rhythm uh to writing humor and so what does that look like oh yeah um so definitely part of my process uh because I started with theater and production you know is just reading aloud I think reading aloud gives me the best chance to get the timing to really see how does this perform you know because even if someone's just reading it off a page um, you know, it's that it's still a sort of a performance. You're just not present for it. So yeah. And you definitely it. have a knack for that as you're reading. <laughs> I can tell I'm like, Oh, he's, yeah, he's done this before. So I hope that you do some live readings of your stuff because you're, you're very talented. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Yeah. I enjoy yeah. it a lot. You know, I think it, it's, it's always a pleasure to get to actually read it aloud and have it exactly the way that you imagine mm-hmm. it in your head. So yeah, I, I think reading aloud, I mean, even outside of humor writing is is a wonderful way of just understanding, like, what is the flow of this? What does it sound like, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because as we go through life, you know, we're not uh, we're not taking in all the information through reading. We're taking it in through talking, through, you know, actions, through things that are happening. So I think that gives you just the best chance to experience it without necessarily uh, just pulling words off a page. And sometimes what I'll find is like, oh, that happens way faster than I thought when I was writing it. Like I thought <laughs> several minutes long and then it's like, oh, no, that was just a quick flash. So or the other, you know, or the opposite yeah. is true. Sometimes something that you felt like you just breezed right through and it's like, oh, gosh, and reading this, it feels like it just never ends. Trim that down. So, yeah. And how much your stories change, do you think, in subsequent drafts? Short story is not much, you know, I, th- okay. I think a lot of those, it's just a lot of the tweaking, the fine tuning. Um, 
larger works, you know, my novels, there are entire scenes that'll change or get cut or, you know, I, I like a lot of editing for, for a large scale mm-hmm. story. Um, just because, you know, you'll go through it the first pass and there's just so much that so much that you'll look back on a scene and say, oh, you know, what would have been really funny is if I'd have done it this way instead of that way, you know, or mm-hmm. you'll change something or you'll come up with this idea that you're like, now this could be the punchline, but I never set it up. So, you know, make a mental note to go back and start, you know, putting in yeah. the, the breadcrumbs to to lead up to this thing that I wanted this to happen right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess I imagine that's takes those are different skill sets. So in a short story, you're kind of working up, you know, to one punchline given at the end. How do you kind of balance that in a novel so that you're know you're kind of giving the reader these little payoffs, but obviously not waiting to the end of the book for different reveals? Yeah, um, I think that in my style, I really love short stories. Um, I read mm-hmm. a lot of the Ray Bradbury short stories growing up, you know, and then, um, I was always amused by the way that he published the Martian Chronicles, his, um, he wanted to publish a book of short stories and his, his publisher, you know, they said, well, short stories really just don't sell as well as novels. We'd really love Mm -hmm. to have another novel from you. And so he, uh, they agreed that they'd publish his book of short stories if he provided a novel. And so he, he went home and he cobbled a bunch of short stories together. And he said, well, if I just put these to a timeline, I can say that it was like, well, this is a colonization of Mars, you know, and it it worked. He managed to get it through. And so each story really has its own arc and has its own uh, plot and and characters for the most part. And it does tell a longer tale when you read it through, but you can enjoy Mm -hmm. each chapter for just the short story that it was. So it was his clever way of getting two books of short stories published instead of one. And, you know, I have more continuity in a novel than, um, than a book of short stories, but I I really like for each chapter to read in that way where, where you can read a chapter and um, you know, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And um, you know, you could read it isolated from the rest of the book and you may not have all the context, Mm -hmm. but you've got kind of a a story here with these characters. Um, So that's just something that I really enjoy. I also enjoy a lot of books from the, as a reader that don't do that at all, but as right. a writer, that's really how I like to to play it off. And so then you just have uh, a sequence of shorter stories that that come to a larger climax at the end altogether. But um, but individually, they still carry their own action. So yeah, yeah, that's really neat. Um, I'm curious as you're talking about reading out loud, do you ever dictate a first draft? Um, For instance, you know, I, do you ever kind of like just have a conversation <laughs> with yourself and hit record, or what does that look like? Uh, not necessarily with a tape recorder, but um, okay. but yeah, I I dictate aloud as I'm typing often. Okay. Um, so it just works for me. Yeah, I like that. Um, I just feel like if you have that actor's mind that that maybe just kind of working it out out loud, I will do that sometimes if I'm stuck uh, in a scene. Then when I'm driving, I'll be like, I'm just going to have this conversation as if I'm my characters and then just talk to myself for a while. And I'm sure. Oh, yeah, little, absolutely. A little out there. <laughs> That's cool. You know, you have your friends who are also in your theater community. Do you ever kind of workshop stories with them? Uh, you know, uh, we all kind of went our different ways from Amarillo. Mm-hmm. So I've met some actors here and there uh, since then. But but uh, for the most part, no. Um, okay. I have a really terrific writing group here. Uh, we refer to ourselves as the world where the books are written. So, oh, um, nice. 
<laughs> which is a throwback to one of my books, actually. So <laughs> that's kind of an honor, especially because they're a very talented group. So that's great. So let's talk a little bit about maybe your inspiration. You mentioned Ray Bradbury. Are there any other authors that you've looked to um, as you're developing your craft? Yeah, you know, I just just have a long history of loving genre fiction. Um, you know, so just from every corner of the library, really, I loved mystery novels, Agatha Christie mm-hmm. and Nero Wolf and Sherlock Holmes stories and that sort of thing. Uh, sci-fi, Ray Bradbury, um, Heinlein, you know, Philip K. Dick. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I just I just really enjoyed kind of the process of that. Ray Bradbury definitely was one that I I, I loved. I loved his very succinct style. And I, I think he just drew a lot of irony out of the things that were happening. He was just very easy to read. Um, in, you know, current, more modern day, I've read a lot of Neil Gaiman, you know, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed that very much. I, I loved the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Ooh. Stuart Churton, okay. um, which was, uh, uh, just such an odd novel. It was, it was sort of a mix of like a quantum leap and an Agatha Christie mystery mm-hmm. and Groundhog's Day, you know, um, so is a guy who's just living, uh, the same day over and over, but from a different person's perspective and okay. what happens at the end of it. And he's trying to figure out who did it before he lives through the last, uh, the last witness. So, um, mm-hmm. it's just such a weird book, not funny at all, but, oh, you know, mind bending the kind that you kind of have to read twice. Cause you're like, okay, now I need to see all the stuff I missed. Cause uh, it's probably a lot. Other than Ray Bradbury, are there authors that you go to that you're like, I like their comedic timing. This is kind of what I strive for as a humor writer. You know, okay, so I think that humor is such a personalized thing. I think it's one of those things that you really just have to find who makes you laugh, you know? And I I think there are some great ones that you could check out. I loved, um, I think that Dave Barry, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the columnist, you know, he's so good at making something really just odd things, just making them funny. You know, I've seen Jerry Seinfeld uh, just talking about how he does comedy and some of the things that he's done. Um, And that's fascinating. You know, he has such a a talent for, you know, for finding it, finding just the little quirks in life. Of course, he built a whole show off of that. Um, You know, one of the funniest books that I read, you know, when I was in my developmental reading phase was, um, the Princess Bride by William Goldman, mm-hmm. um, you know, which I didn't expect to be better than the movie, but it still was. So, yeah, you know, there's just a lot. There's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, is a very funny book. But I, I think with humor, you know, um, I think humor is great for a writer, even if you're not setting out to write something that would be a comedy, you know. I right. mean, it's it's like, um, you know, the, humor is such a great way to to form a bond with the reader, you know, if you mm-hmm. can kind of connect with a reader the same way that you'd use humor to connect to just another human being, um, you know, or to just provide those moments of levity in a much more serious story. You know, sometimes I feel like when I'm reading something that's, um, that is not a comedy, you know, it's, it's something mm-hmm. about just real stuff. I actually find it harder to take it seriously if there are no moments of levity. Then I feel like an author is just like pushing tragedy on me, you know, like mm-hmm. you should be depressed. I'm just going to make everything turn out the worst possible way. You know, I just feel like an author is doing this because real life isn't like this. Real life has those little pockets, you know, um, even when things are going terribly, you know, something funny will happen here or there. So, yeah. So it's definitely a skill we can all practice, even if we don't want to be necessarily humor writers, but how to add humor into our own work. You know, do you 
play around with different types of humor in your work. So obviously there's going to be like black humor, there's going to be more tongue in cheek humor. Do you have a style that comes most naturally to you? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different kinds of humor. And um, I really gravitate to something that's, um, I like humor that kind of celebrates life and celebrates Mm -hmm. humanity and that sort of thing. I think humor, uh, yeah, I see a lot of like very cynical humor and that can be very funny. You know, people can really master that. So I'm not trashing cynical humor at all here but um but i think that there's just enough of that around that i i tend when i write i just you know i want something that really you know you laugh about and then you can feel good about you know um and pinecone's a good example of that mm-hmm. you know that it's it is funny you know but at the at the same time you know the the foibles of life and growing up and the choices you make and the consequences of those choices you know um but in the end you know the old man says you won't regret it, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is a good message. And so, so I like, uh, I don't know, I like humor that's a little more uplifting. Other than, you know, reading books that you enjoy by voices that you like, are there any craft books or resources online that you've turned to, to help with humor writing that maybe you could could point out for folks. <laughs> so, well, so let me tell you, you know, when you invited me to this podcast, uh, all right, humor writing, you know, that's something that I've done <laughs> a little bit of. So uh, I should be able to speak to this. And then, of course, I thought this question, you know, okay, so so how do I write humor? And I should never have asked this question at all, because as soon as you start trying to dissect it, you're like, oh, I'm in trouble. I have mm-hmm. no idea, you know, and just trying to think like, well, well, how do you go about it? How do you tell someone like, okay, here's how to write something funny. You know, I mean, we can mm-hmm. go through the anatomy of a joke and it just kills the humor. Like, like <laughs> you start talking about like, okay, well, first we're going to start with the setup and then we're going to lead to a punchline. Yeah. And, you know, if you're thinking about all that, um, while you're trying to write it, I, I think you're already, you're already in a bad place. Cause it's so, um, analytical at that point you know so um you know but there are definitely some things there are some weird sciencey things like apparently the k sound is the most funny sound so if you can k sounds in a in a punchline or in in kind of the you know then that presumably makes it funnier and then the g sound following the k is like the second runner-up in funny okay sounds. so so, you know, there's that for, you know, as I was kind of researching, like, okay, other people tell me, how do I write funny stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that were, you know, that in different articles, different people were suggesting different things. Obviously, there's like, uh, the rule of three, which is not just for humor writing. But I think, you know, when you set up, uh, I think a lot of humor is about subverting expectations. And so right. uh, the rule of three is a really good way to create an expectation, because you say it once, and then it's an event, you say it twice. And now it's, you know, it's a repeat. And then the third time, now there's an expectation. And so three is the lowest number, the the most efficient way to set an expectation for somebody. And so, um, you know, Pinecone, he said something right up at the beginning, he was, you know, maybe why do I default to these things? See, maybe I like the way she scrunches up her face when she's mad. Maybe I'm taking out aggression. Maybe I'm just a jerk, you know? So the last (laughs) one always kind of like subverts the others. You know, the other right. two are so much more self-analytical and then he's there. Eh, maybe mm-hmm. I'm just a jerk. So let's see. So here is an example that I just, I set it aside because it made me laugh. But uh, Laura Keitlinger mm-hmm. wrote, uh, I can't think of anything worse after a night of drinking than waking up next to someone and not being able to remember their name or how you met or why they're dead. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a right. nice rule of three kind of thing. And I think I think that with humor, there's a lot of different ways to subvert those expectations. Like you can, um, 
you know, you can play off of cliches. People already have an expectation. So if you're playing a story trope, something like that, and then you kind of introduce it just like it naturally would come about in a story. And then you just turn it on its head, you know, then, you know, you can make something funny out of that. I think of the, you know, fractured fairy tales are kind of popular right now. And a lot of that yeah. is kind of just re retelling. Yeah, that's a great story. example. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, and I think, I think that, that, that laugh reflex is always kind of brought on by surprise. So I think you're always trying to look for to surprise people. So, so there's, there's more of a technique kind of side to it, I suppose. Yeah. But, but again, I think nothing just beats finding things that make you laugh or, you know, and, and several of the books I mentioned are not comedies, but they do have humorous elements, you know, being able to draw those out, um, you know, it can not only show you how to make, you know, something humorous, but um, when you draw humor from a not a non-comedy kind of story, it can also help you kind of know where can you use comedy in a story, you know, that maybe isn't the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, and, and to what effect, you know, to lighten the mood or, or to just give a, a human moment or something like that. Well, and stand-up comedians are going to always, you know, go to maybe not the largest club, but they're going to they're gonna go and they're going to tell those jokes and they're going to gauge the audience reaction. Do you have some people around you who you kind of gauge yes. a reaction? Okay. <laughs> yes, I do. I have, you know, co-workers, my wife, when she's in a good mood, you know, uh, she's often in a good mood, but she's yeah. not always in the mood to be my sounding board. So I totally understand that. But yeah, definitely. Um, I actually read a story that uh, Jerry Seinfeld, what he would do, what he does uh, is he will actually show up at comedy clubs unannounced. He'll talk mm. to the owners, but they won't put him on the bill when he has stuff that he wants to try mm. out. And so he'd actually go go to a comedy club and then the, the owners would come out and say, all right, we have a special guest for you. And then Jerry Seinfeld. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that that's a great idea. I mean, I think that's great for any kind of writing, but definitely for mm-hmm. humor, you know, especially because, you know, at a point you get too close to it after the eighth draft of a story, you know, you're like, is this funny? Yeah, I can't tell anymore. Like, am I editing or am I just moving stuff around? What's happening? Right. What, what is this even? I have no <laughs> idea. So. But if you can read it to people and then they laugh and they're like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. funny, then it makes you feel better about it. So Yeah. And I feel like compared to other types of writing, like you can really tell if someone's laugh is genuine. Whereas if you give someone maybe a beta reader your work and you don't hear back for a while or they kind of give you canned feedback, <laughs> so it's very different than reading and seeing that that gut reaction in the moment. Oh, you know, um, something that I found, you know, something that I found that I, I tend toward, uh, you know, like gags. I tend to edit them out. Like, like if something feels like a gag or it just feels too jokey, I'll think it was maybe funny when I wrote it initially. And then when I go through and I'm trying to edit and I'm like, oh, that's dumb. Those are the things that I wind up trimming out. But then, you know, the, the humor that's more natural and it's more character driven and is more just, um, you know, or, or just it's more witty, you know, it's not a joke or a, you know, not a pratfall kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, those are the things that, you know, reading the second time through, you know, sometimes like, oh, that is funny. And sometimes less is more with that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think I do that in my own writing as well. I'm like, that was brilliant when I wrote it. And now it's just filling <laughs> up the page when we need to get to those beats faster. So we do have a little bit more time. Do you have any flash or anything else that's handy that you'd be willing to share? Oh, flash fiction. Let's see. <laughs> what do I have? I do, actually. I'm sure I can pull something up. All right. Um, so this is a slightly shorter story, but it was... Um, published 
recently in a collection called Chiaroscuro, which was a collection of stories about vice and virtue. Um, and it is called Lucy's Monster. So it goes like this. Uh, Did you check under the bed? Asked Lucy, her eyes scanning the room. Lucy's father knelt, lifted the bed skirt, and made a theatrical production of peering into the depths. He rose with a smile on his face. No pumpkin, no monsters under the bed. Lucy pressed her lips together. In the closet? Check the closet. Her father walked to the closet and cracked the door. He peeked inside and made a face of comical shock before throwing the door open to reveal nothing but hanging clothes and piled boxes. Monster free. Anywhere else? Lucy offered a seven-year-old scowl in return for her father's antics. How about the window? Lucy's father moved to the window and pulled back the curtains. He wrinkled his nose at the sight of some crumbling remains on the sill. No monsters. But how long has that been there? What is it? asked Lucy. Her father picked it up with two fingertips, held it to his nose, and took a tentative sniff. Is this a dog biscuit? Lucy, you know the dog is not supposed to be in your room. Luca doesn't come into my room, Daddy. She's afraid of the monster. She's a big scaredy. He held the crumbly remains of the biscuit out to her. Do you mean to tell me that you were snacking on this? Lucy did not bother to hide her disgust. I don't even like your grilled cheese. Do you really think I would put that in my mouth? Her father narrowed his eyes, a clear sign he was activating his parental lie-detecting gaze. Then who, young lady, should I believe is responsible for this disgusting, half-chewed dog biscuit in your window? Lucy leaned in and spoke in a conspiratorial whisper. Monsters love dog biscuits. Lucy's father clicked his tongue. Lucy, there are no monsters. We've checked the entire room. Besides, you're old enough to know that monsters aren't real. He sat down on the bed and placed a finger on her forehead. They're all in your mind. Lucy brushed her father's hand away and thrust her finger in his face. You're sure about that, are you? Well, won't that be good news for Cheryl Carson? She had to see the school counselor today on account of her anxiety. Bet you can't guess why she had anxiety. I'll give you three tries. Her father stroked his chin. You gave her one of my grilled cheese sandwiches? Lucy rolled her eyes. Strike one. Hmm, said her father. Did you force her to play a pointless guessing game? Strike two, and I know you're just messing with me. You're not as funny as you think you are. Shh said her father, his finger to his lips. I've got a good feeling about this one. It's coming to me. Is it monsters? Of course it's monsters. She told Jenna Ludmire that a big old shaggy monster with horns and giant teeth and nasty scraping claws jumped out of her closet last night and scared her so bad she had to put on new pajamas. Cheryl Carson, huh? I thought you didn't get along with her. Lucy thrust her hand on her hip. I don't? She makes fun of my shoes, and she breaks all the purple crayons because she knows they're my favorite. If anyone deserves a little anxiety, it's Cheryl Carson. Lucy's father picked her up and deposited her beneath her blankets. You know, if Cheryl Carson is having anxiety about something, maybe we shouldn't be so hard on her, even if she does break all the purple crayons. 
She's not having anxiety about something. She's having anxiety about monsters. Are you even listening to me? Some things don't have horns and teeth and scraping claws. Monsters do. Her father swept a finger across her forehead and tucked a few loose hairs behind her ear. Just go easy on her, all right? You never know what other people are going through that makes them act the way they do. Monsters come in all shapes and sizes. Shapes and sizes? What do you mean? asked Lucy. Are you saying Cheryl Carson is some kind of monster? No, Pumpkin, said her father. I'm saying that sometimes people might act in a way we think is monstrous. But if we're willing to look a little deeper, we may find something, some surprising reasons for that. Maybe she feels vulnerable. Maybe somebody hurt her feelings in the past, and she's mean, so people will f be afraid to hurt her feelings again. Okay, said Lucy thoughtfully. Just so long as you're not really calling her a monster. That's giving her way too much credit. At best, I would say she's a pest. Her father kissed her on the head. Good night, Pumpkin. I'll leave the nightlight on for you. He stood up and walked toward the hall, stopping for a moment at the door. Love you, Lucy. Love you too, Daddy. He clicked off the light and closed the door. And there it was. Standing next to the wall, where it had been veiled by the open door, was an enormous, shaggy, green monster. Two black horns protruded from its head. Moisture from its giant teeth gleamed in the glow of the nightlight. The tips of its claws scraped against the carpet as it took one lumbering step toward Lucy. Lucy's heart jumped in her chest. She stifled a scream and nearly fell out of bed. So there you are! What is the matter with you? I hate when you jump out at me like that! The great fearsome beast opened its enormous dripping mouth. A deep rumble in its throat rose and took shape in its mouth, forming speech that sounded like grinding stones. Apologies, my lady. The deep resonance of its voice sent vibrations through her bones. Lucy shook off her trepidation. She stood up on her mattress and looked the beast in the eyes. We were looking everywhere for you. Didn't you hear us? Would it kill you to stop making me look so stupid to Mommy and Daddy? Do you see how they look at me when I talk about you? They think I've lost my mind. The monster lowered its bloodshot eyes and sulked. Nevertheless, it was the most horrifying display of sulking imaginable. Lucy crossed her arms. And thank you for letting me get in trouble for your dog biscuit. Is it asking so much for you to clean up after yourself? The monster shook its shaggy green head. It won't happen again, my lady. See that it doesn't. Lucy followed up her admonition with a demonstrative huff. The monster averted its gaze. Forgiveness, my lady. I'm so terribly shy. You know how parents frighten me. Lucy took a deep breath and released her anger. Well, I guess I can't be too upset. You did take care of Cheryl Carson, after all. The creature genuflected before her bed. Your bidding has been carried out, my lady. A wicked smile crossed Lucy's lips. Yes, she'll be wetting the bed for a week. That'll teach her to break my purple crayons. She slid off the bed onto the floor. Lucy moved to the window, drew the curtain aside, and gazed at the panorama of stars and city lights. Then you are pleased, my lady, said the monster from behind her. For now, she said, glancing back at him. There are fresh biscuits for you in the dollhouse. See that you don't leave any crumbs this time. The monster glanced at the intricate dollhouse to its left. It fumbled with brutish claws to unclasp the hatch.
It then gingerly opened the miniature building to reveal the delicious contents within. It smacked its wet lips. So generous, milady. The liver ones are my favorite. Lucy offered a dismissive wave. Yes, yes, eat up. Quickly, though, we have more work to do. More children in need of anxiety, asked the monster between crunches. Lucy turned her attention to the window with an evil smile. So very many, monster. I want to talk to you about a boy named Evan Matthews. Oh? He pulled my hair at recess. That was wonderful. Thanks so much, David. I was on mute, but I was cracking up. Well, thanks again. I know that you didn't plan a second reading, so thanks so much. Always happy to do readings. They're a lot of fun for me. Before we jump off, can you let everyone know how to support you, where to find your work, and you know how to keep up with whatever you're working on next? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, so I've got a novel, and I just recently this month published the sequel um, to that novel. So the novel is... Congratulations. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much. They're published through Black Rose Writing. Um, and they're available on Amazon. Uh, so Lost on a Page is my original novel, and it is about a detective who discovers he is a fictional character, and he sets off for the world where the books are written there to murder his author. Uh, and then the sequel, Lost on a Page, Character Developments, uh, just came out this month, and so more more mayhem ensues. Uh, lots and lots of fun, lots of genre hopping. Um, it's, you know, it's an homage to all of the genre fiction that I love, you know, through my life, but... Uh, it's also um, lovingly pokes at everything. So um, please look me up. You know, I am actually building a website. And at the time okay. of this recording, it is not published, but it should be up <laughs> by the time uh, by the time that it airs. So uh, find me at davidesharp.com. So thank you again. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com. Okay. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing! <laughs>